In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm very grateful for this opportunity once again to reflect with you on the scriptures before my children's baptism. Uh, This time, of course, since there are two babies, I'll be preaching two sermons back to back, (laughs) so everybody should get comfortable. Honestly, though, there is plenty in today's readings to fuel many sermons. We just heard some of the most memorable phrases in all of the Bible, including God saying to Abraham, number the stars if you are able. Uh, Abraham believing the Lord and the Lord reckoning it to him as righteousness. Faith as the substance of things hoped for and evidence of things unseen. Uh, God's faithful confessing that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. Jesus' admonition, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Uh, and so forth. That's just for starters. We'll have to pick and choose what to focus on. What I'll do is begin with one possible way of understanding the definition of faith that opens Hebrews 11, and then tie this understanding to a few other notions, strangers and foreigners on the earth, treasure in heaven, the son of man coming like a thief in the night, and Abraham's belief being reckoned as righteousness. That's still a lot, so still probably a good idea to get comfortable. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas' opinion was that the author of Hebrews gives us a definition of faith that is complete but obscure. I'm inclined to agree about the obscure part. It's never been exactly obvious to me what the substance of things hoped for or evidence of things unseen are supposed to mean. As for the completeness of the definition, I think we mean a lot of different things by faith. And I doubt that any single definition could capture all of them. But on Aquinas' way of thinking, faith is one of three theological virtues, along with hope and love. What that means is that faith is a sort of tendency or habit or disposition that we receive by God's grace. It is a tendency to believe in God and certain things about him in a peculiar sort of way. By saying that faith is the substance of things hoped for, Aquinas reckons is meant something like beginning or foundation or starting point. Faith is the entryway into the things that we hope for. By the evidence of things unseen, he thinks is meant something like certitude or conviction. And what's unseen in the case of faith, he thinks, is God and certain things about him. So putting all these pieces together, faith is a way of believing in God that, on the one hand, involves believing with a great deal of certitude or conviction. It is firm and tenacious, unlike some doubtful opinion you might hold on to lightly and discard if it's called into question. On the other hand, faith involves believing in God as unseen, and hence without being moved to our certitude or conviction by any of the usual routes, 
like a compelling knockdown argument or the testimony of your own senses. I firmly believe that I've got these two hands because I can see them. I think two and two makes four because of mathematical intuition or something like that. But my faith in God is not based on sense or intuition or any other sort of reasoning derived from them. It is based, Aquinas says, on a choice of the will brought about by divine authority through which the will's choice determines the intellect. To put that in other words, we have faith when our wills are so moved to desire the wonderful things they hear promised in God's word that they in turn move our minds to believe things firmly and resolutely that we might otherwise remain neutral about or even disbelieve. I think we can observe a similar pattern in more homely cases like this one. Uh, for me, it'd be really, really great if the Notre Dame Fighting Irish football team won the national championship. I strongly desire this. And if I listen to some pro-Irish sports radio host banging away about how the Irish will win it this January, my will might be so moved by the goods this person is promising that I choose to believe Notre Dame is going to pull it off. I might believe this even though the last time I saw them play, they were absolutely annihilated by Clemson in the playoffs. I might even believe this firmly and tenaciously. Now, if I believed this way, you might think I was a bit of a gullible stooge. What's more, if I believed this way about something that actually mattered, as opposed to football, you might think I was doing something really wrong. We cannot just go around believing that whatever we want is or will be the case. We call that wishful thinking. So why does Aquinas think it's okay to believe in God by faith? Well, according to his very traditional way of thinking about goodness and badness, things are good just to the extent that they exist and vice versa, such that badness is a lack of something that should be there. This is clear enough, for instance, when it comes to my left sock, which is a bad sock because it has a hole in it. There's something missing. But without bogging in the details of all the ways goodness and existence correspond, it also seems clear that only in the case of desiring God is the object of our will perfectly good. God is goodness itself, you might say. But the degree of existence corresponding with perfect goodness is perfect too. And it seems plausible to think that what exists perfectly exists necessarily. A perfect being just has to be there. Hence, faith in God will not and cannot come up empty. When we sang in the psalm a few minutes ago, our soul waits longingly for the Lord, our heart rejoices in him, in his holy name we have put our trust. We will not long or trust in vain. Since this is only true of desiring God, however, faith in the theological virtue sense must be faith in God. 
I think looking at faith the way I've been describing helps make sense of the way that Abraham's believing the Lord and obeying when he was called counted as a real act of trust, a leap away from anything his senses or reason could have brought him to by themselves. Yet it also shows how faith, like Abraham's, isn't simply blind or wishful thinking, but might actually count as knowledge. As our reading in Hebrews goes on to put it, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. This is true of all the articles of our faith that we'll recite shortly in the baptismal creed. So far, however, our story is crucially incomplete. If we ended with what we've seen so far, we might easily conclude that Abraham's faith was this monumental accomplishment on his part, an act of spiritual heroism. And in fact, I think we often do read Hebrews 11 as a litany of Hebrew heroes of the faith. Abraham is just the first. I don't want to say we're wrong necessarily to read it that way either, but here's the rub. The verse in our Genesis reading that says God reckoned Abraham's faith to him as righteousness gets repeated, I think, five different times in the New Testament. Four of them are in St. Paul's dense discussions of justification in Romans and Galatians. There, one point he clearly wants to hammer home is that Abraham is justified by faith and not by works of the law. To the one who works, Paul says, his wages are not counted to him as a gift, but as his due. Whereas to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. As I mentioned before, saying that faith is a theological virtue means that it is a gift of grace. Faith plays a pivotal role in our salvation, but it is ultimately God who saves us. He produces in us the passionate desire for himself that moves our minds to saving belief. I think the importance of this point about grace really can't be overemphasized. This is something on which both the Reformed and the Catholic strands of our Anglican heritage very much agree. But it raises lots of thorny questions. For example, this one. How is it a choice or decision on our part that moves our minds to saving faith if it's really God who does the work? choosing or deciding for us? I am strongly tempted to weigh in with an answer to this, but I think it would take us on a tangent away from our texts. Uh, instead, what today's readings do call us to think about is a second thorny question, namely how justification by faith, once we view it properly as a gift of grace, is related to sanctification the process by which our character is transformed into the likeness of Christ. Consider the fifth time the New Testament mentions Abraham's faith being reckoned as righteousness. It's in the epistle of St. James. And unlike Paul, James urges that faith by itself, if it is, does not have works, is dead. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. 
Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, one thing to notice in this passage is that demons have a sort of faith, too. They, too, believe in God as something unseen, but they believe with what Aquinas calls formless or lifeless faith, that is, faith apart from love. They believe because they've seen many signs attesting to God's power to which they are attracted. Formed faith, or living faith, believes because it is attracted to God. You cannot have living faith in God without loving God above all else. And this ties to the broader point James is making in the passage I read, namely that genuine faith manifests itself in works, or to put it differently, in a morally transformed life. Both the readings from Hebrews and from Luke's gospel speak about this type of moral transformation in terms of reordered priorities and desires or we might say in terms of rightly ordered loves. In Luke, Jesus preaches both about getting our heart in the right place by storing our treasure in heaven, and also about fixing our attention resolutely on the master's coming without being distracted by mundane concerns. Hebrews, likewise, speaks about living as strangers and foreigners on the earth, desiring a heavenly homeland, a city built by God. I take it these projects of desire, attention, and lifestyle reorientation are not any straightforward matter, but rather just are the whole business of becoming holy, of transforming into Christ-likeness. The question then is how Abraham's faith, reckoned to him as righteousness and thereby justifying him, but also given to him by God's grace, relates to his life as a stranger and sojourner seeking a heavenly homeland. After all, it seems not too hard on the face of it to imagine someone having faith while remaining quite comfortable at home on the earth with their treasure stashed right here, their heart beside it, and their attention given to allocating it strategically so as to net a high return on investment. Well, for sure, this is something on which theologians strongly disagree. But I think the view of faith I sketched earlier provides one pretty helpful way of thinking about the issue. On this view, recall, we have living faith in God when out of love for him, our wills move our minds to firm and tenacious belief. Building on this idea, Aquinas would say that to love God who is goodness itself is also to love God's goodness and to hate, correspondingly, the sins that distance us from it. As Thomas sees it, God created humans in a state of original justice, 
in which our various desires are obedient to our minds and wills, which are in turn obedient to God. This original state of justice was upset by the fall, and we're well acquainted with the results. Our minds and wills no longer obey God, nor do our desires fall in line with what our minds tell us would, all things considered, be best. Instead, they shoot off in all sorts of often contrary directions. Justification, as its name suggests, restores the justice upset by original sin. It begins when out of love for God's goodness and hatred for our sins, we believe by faith that God will give us the grace we need to get our heart's desires back in the right place, refocusing our attention on what really matters. In this case, wanting that something be so and faithfully believing that God will make it so will, in fact, make it come about. Do not be afraid, Abram, God says. I am your shield. Do not be afraid, little flock, says Jesus, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The God who makes these promises is faithful indeed. But as Hebrews reminds us, we shouldn't expect to see them honored right away. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, though from a distance they saw and greeted them. Uh, Eleanor Stump is a very wise writer whom I've relied on for a lot of what I've just said, and she likens original sin to a terminal cancer of soul that will kill us spiritually if left untreated, whereas the faith that justifies us is like a slow-acting drug that cures spiritual cancer but takes time to work. In one sense, having believed, we can rejoice because we've received the cure. In another sense, however, we face a long, hard road of recovery with the malignant cancer cells still present, our disordered desires and inability to focus on what truly matters. So what exactly does the process of faith-based spiritual cancer treatment look like? I truly wish, for my own sake, that I had more of substance to say here. But even if I did, I've already gone on long enough. So I'll close with just three observations about our readings that I do feel fairly confident about. First, they suggest that, like pretty well any other cancer treatment, we should expect ours to be uncomfortable. It should make us feel like strangers and foreigners in the world, or like servants waiting on tenterhooks for the return of their master. Neither of these is a comfortable position to be in. Second, there's both room for disagreement and a need for constant re-examination about just how radical a form this discomfort ought to take in the life of any given Christian. Emphasizing Jesus's command, sell your possessions, or Hebrews reminder that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived in tents waiting for the city with foundations built by God, we might well suppose that possessing a house in the suburbs with solid enough foundations of its own, we hope, 
which we hope will steadily accumulate treasure in the form of equity, but which we know is altogether susceptible to thieves and moths and other calamities, that this sort of possession is something strangers and foreigners on the earth should do without. I think this is a suggestion those of us in the position I just described should take seriously. It should discomfort us. On the other hand, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob weren't exactly possession-less. They lived in tents, partly to follow around their large herds. At his death, Abraham's household included eight children by my count, and the Bible mentions at least 24 grandchildren of his by name. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends the 12 forth without purses. But in our reading, he counsels us only to make purses that don't wear out. It may be that the message is one about stewardship as much as poverty. This is something we must continue to reflect on. Lastly, however, at any rate, I think it's very important not to let the phrases a heavenly country or treasure in heaven mislead us into thinking that the kingdom Christ promises is someplace other than right here. We're talking about this planet, not outer space or some other spiritual dimension. We are strangers and foreigners in the world as corrupted and polluted by our injustice and cruelty to our neighbors and other fellow creatures. To be sure, because we are citizens of the city whose architect and builder is God, our true homeland is not America or any other iteration of the city of man. Borders erected on the basis of nationality or race or class do not feature in the geography of the kingdom. And in the economy of the kingdom, we possess absolutely nothing as our own. We tend whatever parcel of the kingdom has been given us like servants anxiously awaiting the return of their master, hoping that when he comes, he will find that corner of the house well tended. If he finds us alert, he will fasten his belt and have us sit down to eat and will come and serve us. Blessed are those slaves called to the supper of the Lamb. Amen. Amen.